namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Continuing this talk uh, entitled, This Pure Subject Has No Name. And this was given by uh, Lumpur Sumato at the Leicester Summer School uh, in 2003. You have experiences in your life that are sometimes surprising. After many years, you suddenly get very angry about something you thought was no longer a problem to you. Rather than taking it personally, however, you now know better. You just recognize that the conditions for this particular emotion are like this. That makes it conscious. You allow consciousness to mirror the karmic habits and conditions that you have during daily life. Once you allow something to be conscious, you can let it be what it is. There's no resisting, judging or criticizing in this. You don't make any value judgments about it, but just recognize it is like this. So, childish emotions might come up. Feelings of hurt and wanting to sulk for a while. I'm not going to speak to him. To me, that's childish. Yet, instead of judging it even as childish, however, it's a matter of getting to know it as you feel it, so that you recognize it. As soon as you say, it's childish, you make some kind of value judgment about it. That is childish, and here you are, a grown man. There is something kind of embarrassing about that, but if you just recognize it as it is, then it's conscious, and you will see it changing. You cannot sustain it, in fact. It won't hold for very long before it starts dropping away. That I see as the way of not creating karma with existing karma that arises. So often uh, Lumpur Sumedha would talk about um, a, uh, an approach to... Um, the sort of investigation of emotional states, and uh, particularly this sort of um, irrational, or as he says here, childish, or a kind of really uh, uh, destructive outbursts of feeling, something that's uh, angry, or jealous, or greedy, or selfish, or, or com complaining. And uh, he, uh, often he would call it thinking the unthinkable. So that if I, for example, if I was very annoyed with uh, Tandipako, he's, there's no offense to even <laughs> if I was annoyed with something that uh, Tanbi Deepako has said or done then <clears throat> and then this feeling of anger arises then uh, what uh, Lumpur Sumedha would encourage is, is a, a way of, of catching that burst of anger and replaying it in a, in a conscious and clear deliberate way so that um, uh, the feeling might be how can he do that that's really stupid you know why is he like that um, and so seeing that burst of feeling and acknowledging it then, in a sense, catching it and replaying it slowed down. <laughs> so you you do a kind of slowed down replay, and then uh, looking and, and feeling that emotion and stating to yourself, um, say as he, as he would put it, thinking the unthinkable, right? <clears throat> so that you would replay that by saying, "Yeah, how can you do that? You are bad and wrong. If you were different, I would be happy." 
yeah, right. You start laughing because you know when you do that, and you is in a sense you're you're slowing it down. You're turning up the lights. You're putting it front center, and then it loses its power because it's it's plainly ridiculous. It doesn't have to be your your thinking mind saying this is ridiculous. Your own intuitive wisdom says, "Oh yeah," <laughs> and and <clears throat> and it knows you'd get upset by something else, or if somebody was different, it wouldn't mean that you were happy forever. And so the 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 shallowness, the 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 falseness of those kind of judgments, it, the, uh, it's revealed by itself. And so that that's a, a really effective practice. I can highly recommend. Don't say it out loud. <laughs> that will cause more trouble. <laughs> so internal practice, inside words, internal practice. But uh, but it is quite funny. Sometimes you might even find yourself. Uh, when Lumpur was teaching this, sometimes you'd hear people giggling in the Dhamma hall, sort of just in the middle of the meditation. You could, you could tell they just replayed, <laughs> they replayed some kind of internal burst, and, go, and, and that is the, the 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 wisdom faculty is saying, yeah, that's a joke. Or, if only I had, if only I could get X, I would be happy forever. You know, if I could just get X or Y or Z, if I just had that, I'd never want anything else ever again. Oh, you know, oh, ha ha ha. And uh, I often tell a story how when I was a, a small child, uh, we were very poor. We had, my parents were farmers and we were very broke. And in our family, uh, we only got presents on two occasions in the year, Christmas and a birthday. And otherwise, we never, my, me and my sisters never got presents. So uh, that meant that birthdays and Christmas got really loaded. <laughs> so uh, uh, we lived in Kent and um, there were, in the village of of Staplehurst, there was a toy shop, and in the window of this toy shop, there was um, a, uh, if you remember, Matchbox Toys. Uh, sm- uh, there was a, a, a small mauve uh, bubble car. Remember those BMW bubble cars with the door that opened on the front, with three wheels? Some of us aged ones can remember. <laughs> so it was a little Matchbox toy of a, of a mauve bubble car, and I fell completely in love with this. So I think it was coming up to my fourth or my fifth birthday. And I was besotted by this this um, little car. And so whenever we went to the to the village, I'd stick my nose up against the window of the of the toy shop and and uh, and uh, say how much I wanted this car. And if I and if I just had that, I'd never want anything else ever again. If I could just have the little mauve bubble car, I would be happy. And then, to my great horror, as it was a, a couple of weeks before my birthday, the little mauve bubble car vanished from the window of the of the shop. <laughs> crisis! Crisis! <laughs> And so uh, I can't remember, it was so long ago, but uh, I think <coughs> uh, I have a memory of asking the, uh, the shopkeeper, Mr. Gray, I think his name was, and he had, what, what had happened to the little mauve bubble car? And uh, he was in cahoots with my mother, I think, and said, oh, what, what, what would that be? I don't, I don't remember. <coughs> anyway, uh, sure enough, uh, my birthday came and there was a little mauve bubble car, and I was, of course, ecstatically happy. And um, and I'd said uh, this, uh, made this statement so many times. If I just have that, I'll never want anything ever again. You know, never. That that's all I'll ever want. And then, um, <coughs> so uh, just like myself, my mother is often you know too clever by half. And so after a few days uh, after my birthday, and I got the little mo bubble car, and I was playing with it all day, and then playing with it half a day, and then an hour or two, and then <laughs> then it was being left on the side. And I'd say, you know, Mom, can I have such and such? You said, again, wow, this is different. You know? <laughs> so she was quoting that to me for years afterwards. You know? 
and uh, and she kept when I, when I left uh, uh, when I left home uh, after and went traveling off to to the east. She kept the mauve bubble car, <laughs> and when she died, I put it in her coffin with her, so it's buried with, you know, with her. But it was a very profound teaching uh, in terms of uh, the Four Noble Truths that we, when we desire something, we can be convinced. If I just get that, what else could I want? I mean, this is, it's everything. Just that. But it's a lie. It's a desire, that kind of craving mind is a, is a liar. So this sort of practice of, of making the, the uh, thinking the unthinkable or making those, those urges conscious, uh, it's a, a using the wisdom faculty to reveal that that lie that if somebody was different that you'd be happy forever or, or um if only they were like um like me or like <laughs> or that they didn't have that habit then they would have they would be perfect they would have no faults and uh it's revealing that superficial judgment and saying well of course the picture is much much bigger than that so to continue then as you begin to enjoy not being anybody not having to be anything, and just trusting in this state of awareness, no more does the ego have a great hold on your experience of life. Ego still operates, but it's seen for what it is, and it's okay. It isn't that one shouldn't have an ego, but the ego is known. It's recognized and understood. The reality from that awareness is not ego, not personality belief, one of the fetters, but pure subjectivity, pure Conscious awareness. Now, one of the last fetters is conceit, mana. This is not personality belief, sakayaditi, but a subtle sense of I am that sustains itself. Then, after that, there is the arahant, the one liberated through wisdom, freedom from the fetters, oneness, non separation, non duality. So, for those of you who are not so familiar with the, the construct of the the, the ten fetters. So this is describing the ten uh, obstacles to enlightenment. And so the first three I was talking about in previous readings. You have uh, self-view, uh, doubt about what's the path and what's not the path, and attachment to uh, conventions. And so those are the first three. So that, uh, when those three have fallen away, when they have those fetters are broken and are, are say, transcended, then that is uh, the arrival at stream entry. Or the what they call the breakthrough, and that stream entry is um, the irreversible guarantee of full enlightenment. So that, uh, according to Buddhist psychology, then within a, a maximum of seven lifetimes, then full enlightenment will be realized. And once stream entry has been reached, it's impossible to be reborn in any of the lower realms. You can't be reborn as an animal or as a ghost or in the, the hell realms. Um, there's still desire and there's still ill will. Um, but uh, the, uh, uh, that's the, the, the format. So stream entry is also called the, the, the turning point or the breakthrough. And it's a, uh, <coughs> a very um, sort of significant, uh, say, goal or uh, a stage in, in liberation. The next level is called once returner or sakadagami. And so at that, uh, that level, then sense desire and ill will are diminished. They don't dis- disappear altogether, but they are reduced. Then uh, the next level is uh, anagami, and uh, the uh, ill will and sense desire have um, disappeared altogether. Uh, so that there is, but there's still the the uh, the last five fetters still apply. So that the anagami, the, the which means the non-returner. Uh, so once returner or sakadagami means that 
Uh, one who's reached that level will only return, be reborn in the, the human realm or above that one more time. Um, and uh, then enlightenment will occur you know, after that, uh, that last lifetime. Anagami means someone who, uh, a being who's reached that stage uh, at the death of the body, then they would not be reborn in the, uh, any of the lower realms at all, but they are born in what are called the Sudavasa, or the pure abodes, which is five uh, particular uh, uh, layers of the upper Brahma worlds. And so they are sort of, that's where all the Anagamis get reborn. There's a whole science to that as well, but uh, Anagami means non-returner, so that uh, my, my pet theory is that Pure Land Buddhism that you have in the Far, in the far East, particularly in the northern Buddhist world, is sort of based on that idea of if you haven't reached Arahantship, but you've reached uh, the stage of a non-returner, you get to be reborn in the Pure Lands. So you can have a, a very, very long lifetime as a Brahma god with uh, full enlightenment guaranteed. So it's like a really attractive retirement plan, you know. <laughs> So you get to go to this really, really, really nice place for a really long time. You can kind of cruise uh, while being a, a, a living being, and you've got enlightenment guaranteed at the end. So that uh, to people attached to the idea of being and, uh, <coughs> and afraid of uh, the ending of rebirth or just the idea of a sort of super-duper heaven, um, then the Pure Lands and Pure Land Buddhism that, um, say, uh, gathered strength and became a, um, a kind of... Uh, uh, a sort of intermediary goal, and so that uh, that's also within the southern Buddhist world it still exists, but it doesn't have such a strong, uh, say, traditional or cultural strength. And so that uh, that um, that uh, level of of say anagami, then the uh, the the five fetters that still remain are attachment to states of concentration based on form, rupa raga, states uh, attachment to states of concentration based on formlessness. Arupa Raga, and then the last three, uh, you don't have to remember all this, just so that you have a sense of, of the map. The last three are Asmimana, as uh, Lumpur is describing here, which means the conceit of identity. Or the, um, Asmi means I am, Mana is conceit, so that this subtle conceit of identity. And then the last two are Udacha, which means restlessness, and then the very last one is uh, Avijja, or, or ignorance. So that uh, the um, uh, the distinction between Sakaya Ditti, which we were talking about in the reading yesterday, as self-view, that's uh, the um, the attitude, I am the body, I am the personality, this is me, this is what I am. So it's attachment to ego and to self in a very a kind of concrete and distinct way. Uh, mana, or Asmimana, is attachment to the feeling of I-ness, even... Uh, divorced from the body, the personality, personal story, that none of that has to be around. There can still be a sense of I. Just like in, in meditation, the mind can be very, very awake, very concentrated, very bright, and, uh, <clears throat> and very clear. And there can be uh, let's see, uh, a uh, profound insight that the body is not self, or feelings are not self, thoughts are not self. But there can still be this I'm meditating. <laughs> There's a there's an I that's the experiencer of this. There's an there's an I who is the agent of of knowing, and even if it's not spelt out in those words like I am knowing or I am the I am the watcher, or, I am the experiencer, that I-ness, me-ness, and minus can still be operating. So that's the asmimana is that uh, say so the feeling of I-ness, me-ness, minus, or in Pali ahankara made of I am or mamankara made of mindness. That, that functions 
even without any kind of uh, attachment to the to the senses or, or to the, the the five khandas in a, a general way, so that it's it's far more subtle, and um, <clears throat> so that it's it's sort of on the whereas sakayaditi self view is down at the sort of initial stages of of enlightenment, then this asmimana is way up in the the more um, refined stages of that. So, any questions on that before I continue? William, you look on the brink of asking a question. Uh, well, Jnana Tiloka's Buddhist Dictionary is always a good reference point. The, uh, well, there's quite a few copies in the library. So this, it's just called uh, uh, Buddhist Dictionary, Venerable Jnana Tiloka. Very handy resource for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Udacha. <laughs> yeah, it's not so fidgeting on your cushion. No, it's a, it's a, uh, it's that. My, my understanding of it is that it's that kind of restlessness that that is more interesting or real than this. There's something over there in the imagined future that is. It's got more promise, or is more interesting, or that it's the mind that overlooks this to get to that, or is ignoring this because of a, a, a and looking at a memory, so that it's essentially the mind that's not awake to the to the present. So it's like, oh, what's that over there? And that dhamma is timeless, akaliko, you know, apparent here and now, sanditiko akaliko, apparent here and now, timeless. So the that udacha is. That the mind's still caught in the realm of time, over there in the future. Oh, there's a promise of something more real, that's more, more true, more, more good than than this. Oh, what's that over there? So it's that moving of attention away from the the present experience, and so that the, it's a it's a, a subtle kind of restlessness, and uh, so the the mind's attachment to to time and to location. That there's a there's a there that's more interesting or more dangerous or 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 that is other than 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 this. There's a here and there is a there. There's a now and then there's a then. So it's those subtle attachments to those um, conditioned perceptions, and that the the falling away of or transcending that kind of restlessness, and also the falling away of avicca, then the mind is. It is awake that there's knowing it's knowing that well the dhamma here and now is could not be different from the dhamma that is to be known in five minutes or five minutes ago or at some other place how could it be different how, you know, how could there be other the dhamma is is timeless it's does it's not uh, bound in space and time or, or in individuality so that it's a um, that's how I read it, anyway. So that it's it's not the fidgeting on the cushion kind of restlessness. So also it's it's just udacha, the 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 restlessness that's the one of the um, obstructions to concentration to samadhi is called udacha kukucha, which is um, gives you an extra sort of itchy quality to it. It's like that fidgeting, restless. Uh, what Morris Walsh translates as flurry and worry. Very effective. It's sort of so it's it's far more subtle. It's the sort of oh, what's that? 
that the mind that is looking towards, oh, we're, I'm on the way to something, or that over there is more interesting or more promising, so that uh, when the mind is totally awake, then it's like there's no promise because this is this is what this is all there is. This is what there is. <laughs> the Dhamma is the entirety of of reality, so that the mind doesn't get caught into that sense of what's that, or as interesting or frightening or irritating or or just got some more information that would somehow make things more complete. That makes sense. Harupa Raga. Um, I'm a bit confused. Would that mean that so these pleasures are present in anybody up to the Anagami stage? But if wouldn't one have to have experienced those states of concentration in order to have that attachment? And would one have to experience them to surpass them when one becomes an Anagami? Would like Arupa Raga, would one have to experience that kind of jhana, the higher state of jhana? That particular attachment that someone never goes to it. It's a good question. Um, I would say that uh, it's it's not necessary to have say develop those states in a, in any kind of particular uh, clear or solid formal way. But it, uh, you know, so it's like um, uh, you can have developed the quality that sees through those, the quality of wisdom. That doesn't attach to that because it's those uh, those two. It's like when the mind is, as we'd say, like blissed out. That there's there's a beautiful, bright, clear, and uh, joyful mind state, and the mind goes, "Wow, this is great, and this is wonderful." And there's and there's a sense of, uh, "I am this. I've got this. This is this is beautiful." But uh, if there's sufficient wisdom, then um, it's like if that arose, it will be seen through. But, even if, but if it doesn't arise, the wisdom is still there, and the wisdom is the crucial faculty. Does that make sense? So even if it doesn't arise, the wisdom like would have to explore. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, the, it's the presence of that wisdom that's the important thing. And so that, um, so if that does arise, then there's a, a clear knowing of what it is, and that it's, it's not self, or it's not something to be uh, attached to or identified with. That's how I would read it. Not that I spent much time in a rupa jhana, uh, if any at all. Anyway, to continue. The first three fetters, self-view, skeptical doubt, and attachment to convention, are created out of ignorance. So they're like our cultural conditioning and attitudes. These are not natural energies, but are artifices that we acquire. So, the thinking process, the conventional world that we make assumptions from, and the sense of a self that is identified with the five aggregates, these we create through belief and ignorance. We create ourselves with these three fetters and bind ourselves in this way. Once these are seen through, what remains are the basic primal instincts, desire, greed and anger, but they're no longer interpreted in terms of the personality belief with egotistical perceptions. This is the experience of the once-returner, the Sakadagamin, and is the recognition of the natural energies that we have as human beings, energies that operate through these forms as basic human emotions. Anger and greed, sexual desire and fear are basic to the mammalian world. To see these in terms of what they are, rather than judging them from some kind of moral or egotistic position, is to begin to trust in awareness. 
You actually recognize sexual desire and anger and fear. You know them, but do not judge them. For a celibate monk, it's necessary to recognize sexual energy. The relationship to that energy, however, is not one of identity, but of recognition, understanding. Living within the convention of a Buddhist monk determines how one acts or does not act. So even though one might experience these natural energies because of recognition and understanding, they simply arise and cease. I do not identify with them, but I know them. The fact that a once-returner, Sakadagamin, can still experience anger and lust and so on, often challenges people's ideals. So this is a very significant point, and um, so the um, uh, he doesn't mention fear so much. Well, he mentions fear a little bit here, but uh, it's talking about anger and sexual desire. But um, the, with all of these basic uh, uh, instinctual energies, it uh, works in exactly the, the same way. And so, say with fear um, or desire or sexual desire or aversion, the uh, the object of that, the, the person you're afraid of, or the thing you're afraid of, or the, or the thing, the person you, the, that there's anger with or aversion to, or, or the, the person that is sexually attractive, and the attention goes to that object. And uh, a lot of the practice in, in this respect is turning the attention around to look at the, the, the felt sense of, okay, there's fear, or there's anger, or there's desire. What does it feel like in the body? Okay, this is very compelling, or you're very worried, or you're very irritated, or very uh, filled with uh, very desirous. But uh, it's so it takes quite a bit of work to turn the attention back and to explore how does this feel in the body? Uh, what 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 is the nature of this? And that uh, that sense of taking the attention off the the object of aversion or fear or desire and bringing it back into well, this this is what fear feels like. This is what sexual desire feels like. This is what aversion feels like. Uh, it's uh, and this is uh, probably the the, the uh, primary way in which one can uh, very effectively explore that and also see it in non-personal terms and not not in personal ways. So that uh, I, I I spend a lot of time working on, on fear in that way myself and how I could see how my attention would always go to the thing that I was worried about, the thing I was afraid of, and uh, to to turn the attention round and look at the experience of fearing was was a real revelation. And, and to, <clears throat> I also I, I often mentioned how I, I felt I'd been really ripped off. I spent so much time in my life, so much energy and effort, trying to get away from that fearful feeling. Like you know, you don't want to be afraid, you don't want to be worried. So you get away from the worrying situation. You get away from the things that are frightening. And, it, and a huge amount of effort and energy to, to, to get to a safe place or to be free of that worry or that difficulty. And then, uh, as I was following uh, Lumpur Samedo's instructions and working with, with this when I was here in the, the 80s, then, uh, and looking at the, the felt sense of fear, the actual experience of it, it was, it was kind of annoying. Like, what? It's just this? This isn't even like a headache or a stone in my shoe. I mean, this. It's not, it's not as bad as a toothache even. Why was I spending so much time and effort getting away from this? It's, it's, it's really not that big of a deal at all. It's not that uncomfortable. It's not that unpleasant. Why did I spend so much time and effort and energy trying to get away from this? And similarly with, with sexual desire, when the, the mind is caught up with, with a, um, sexual attraction, then you, we can think of it as something very kind of positive or, or desirable or good. But then again, when you... You look at the, the physical sensation or the feelings that go along with desire, then to your surprise you realize 
this is quite uncomfortable. <laughs> Why do I want more of this? This is actually kind of un this is uh, this is unpleasant and just as unpleasant as a feeling of fearing or, or uh, aversion and so on. And so that that uh, way of learning to recognize the energy and see it as a part of the human condition, having a body, having a mind, and these things are going to arise, and to 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 uh, help it to be seen in a, a non-personal way. Uh, I when I was living here in, in the 80s and early 90s, I had a, a an interesting experience one day where um, I was uh, I was the monastery secretary. Uh, Ajahn, the then Ajahnatapemo was the English Sangha Trust secretary, and I was the Amravati secretary. We shared an, uh, the back office together, and um, and so I was always uh, <coughs> juggling a lot of different things, responsibilities that I had, and. One particular day, I was leaving the sala, and I had to go into the office to 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 fi fix something or get something. And I was definitely <laughs> uh, moving towards this thing. I didn't want to be uh, I didn't want to be interrupted because I had very short time to to get to the office and get the pieces of paper and get back again and so forth. So <clears throat> there, um, uh, I was going f uh, in uh, the little uh, pathway up to the office door, and there was a, a young woman waiting on the path. And so, as I'm approaching, then there's, oh no, this person wants to talk to me. Grumble, grumble, grumble. So my first feeling is aversion. This person's in my way. I've got important things to do. And so then, um, but then she wanted to ask some uh, a question about, you know, where do I find the meditation workshop? <laughs> Where's the library? I forget what the question was. But what was really interesting was, so the dominant perception in my mind was aversion. Like, oh, there's a person in my way. I've got an important thing to do. Uh, oh well, yeah. and so, but then as as I kind of uh, approached, and then she started speaking to me, then this feeling of sexual excitement arose, and then she answered the question, "Oh yeah, well, this is the library or the meditation workshops over there," and then she said, "Oh, thank you very much," and walked off, and it just disappeared, and then I went and went back to like, oh, it was just like a like a sound had appeared, there's a loud sound, and then it went away. And it was so completely non-personal, and the, the and it and it had arrived <laughs> sort of having the the having uh, sort of been on a basis of of aversion like that's what was in my mind when I uh, approached, and then it was and then then she walked off and it disappeared. But wow, that's <laughs> it's just a mechanical process. It's just like a a, a kind of physical uh, uh, chemical reaction. Nothing else. And it was uh, it was so obvious that uh, it was like not a personal thing. It's just you put two human beings close together, and then that kind of effect happens, and you move them apart, and it stops. <laughs> that that simple. Yeah. So it was a very uh, interesting moment. But uh, in, in that period, that was also Lumpur Sumedho was talking, uh, teaching a lot about mindfulness of, of emotion. And uh, as I said, I was mostly paying attention to fear and worry. But it was uh, in that that time. It was um, a very very helpful insight to see. This is it's just natural, you know, non personal processes that are at work. It's just no need to to get upset or get uh, get uh, say uh, intimidated or, or caught up. It's just that that's how it works. I mean, that's uh, uh, there's a lot more to it. <laughs> so it's not so easy just to switch those things off or get perspective on them. But it was really, uh, um, uh, I think, an incredibly important teaching that Paul's giving here, because we do spend a huge amount of time f being dominated by these emotions, uh, 
the way we deal with things that we complain about or worry about or attracted by. Huge amounts of time and energy and effort are, are, are burnt, spent in our lives uh, with the, trying to fulfill or, or, or kind of say, being dominated by those energies. And we get, if the mind gets a perspective on them, there's a lot more space in our days, <laughs> a lot more space in, in, our, in our life. So, to continue. In Thailand, they think that even becoming a stream enterer, a sotapanna, is rare, but an arahant is such a rarity, and Nibbana so high up in Theravada Buddhism, it's exalted to such a high level that it really is impossible for any of us. That's the way thought is. Thought is linear and can only go from good, better, best, bad, worse, worst. And Nibbana can only fit into the best. Well, that means it's really high. When you contemplate the teachings of the Buddha, however, you realize that he was not pointing to height or refinement, but to reality here and now, which isn't high, which isn't an achievement that you come to by refining everything, by controlling your environment. A high conscious state might seem like Nibbana, but try to operate from that when you go into London on the underground. You just feel, this world is too ugly and coarse for me, I can't bear it anymore. And you become someone who has to control things. Become a control freak. Because in order to get that high level, you have to control your environment. But Nibbana is not high. You could use the word transcendent instead, but that also sounds high. So the worldly life is then dismissed as irrelevant and lesser. One gets into wanting just to live in a refined state of consciousness because the course is just too much to bear. We can get attached to tranquility to high levels of conscious experience, but if we reflect from the empty point, from this pure subjectivity, we begin to see through that. We see the attachment to refined states of consciousness and to any experience. After contemplating this pure subjectivity, I began to recognize that the existential reality of being is that I am in this place. I, I am before I become anything before I become Ajahn Sumedho, before I become a Buddhist monk or an American, before I become anything, there is this sense of this. This is the subject here. And you are the objects to me in this reality of now. So I can create myself into Ajahn Sumedho and become a teacher and so forth. Now for a while I resented this because when you become a teacher, you can't learn from anybody. You always have to be the teacher and all your relationships around being that. In a monastery, everybody looks at you as the teacher. So you end up feeling lonely, because a part of you just wants to be an ordinary human being, and not always put into a position where the karma takes place. From the I am, whatever I add to that, I make myself into somebody. I am an American. I am a Theravadan Buddhist monk. I am a disciple of Lumpur Cha. I am a person with limited qualities. I become the very things that I create. If I just operate from that, however, without questioning it, questioning it, that is how I see life. I become self-conscious, shy, or whatever personality trait I happen to be holding to. If I trust in pure subjectivity, however, then the ego can still operate, but I'm no longer attached to it. So I can come across in a personable way rather than just sitting here unable to relate. The personality then is a tool to use. And I don't have this sense there's a, a real self operating. 
This is where I find Buddhism excels in its teaching. Oh, this term that Lumpur is using here, pure subjectivity, uh, like uh, most Dhamma teachers, <laughs> he has a particular phrases or terms that he'll use for a, a certain amount of time, a year or two or a few. Um, so at this point he was using this, this term, pure subjectivity, or the pure subject, as a way of speaking about the quality of awakened awareness. So nowadays he uh, uses consciousness a lot to refer to that same quality. But it's that, uh, that quality of, uh, say, uh, of awareness, of knowing, which is the very fabric of our experience. That's the means through which every one of, uh, of our minds knows the world, knows thought, knows feeling, knows, knows life. And so uh, that uh, putting the I am is not the pure subjectivity, that, uh, at least in this way of speaking, that, that uh, when the, the, the mind creates I am, and even uh, that amount of identification or that conceit, that conceiving, then that pure subjectivity, that pure awareness, has been departed from. The mind has, in a sense, left that pure awareness and said, well, there's a me who's aware. I know, I am. There's a, an amness, uh, an I-ness. And so that, um, that uh, what he's pointing to here is that the more that that quality of uh, awakened awareness, that, that pure subjectivity, that pure subject, as it were, and that pure awareness, the, or as they say in the Thai language, the, the puru, the, the one who knows, that, uh, the, the buddho, or the awake, aware mind, the, the more that is free of any kind of conceit, any kind of identification, then the more that that mind can adapt and be comfortable in, in every situation. As he says, um, if I trust in pure subjectivity, then the ego can still operate, can still be a personality, can still talk and function and uh, connect with uh, the world. And, uh, and he says, that, so I can come across in a, a personable way rather than just sitting here unable to relate. So that it's a mysterious thing that the, the more the mind lets go of Identity, identity and personality, the more freely the personality can operate. That makes sense. The more you forget yourself, the more you can be yourself. <laughs> the more this, I'm, 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 I'm being myself here, then the more kind of awkward and, and out of balance and, uh, and alienated that the, the, the mind is. So that there's, um, there's a, a, a very interesting teaching I often quote in the, the middle length discourses called the, it's at the end of the sutta called the five and the three, the, the Panchataya Sutta, <coughs> which I think is sutta number 102. This is number 102 in the, the Majjhima Nikaya, if I remember. And uh, it, the, in that, uh, in that uh, um, part of the, the sutta, the Buddha says, there can be someone who's sitting meditating, and their mind is very bright, very, very awake, very clear, and then within them, the mind, there arises the thought, I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbana. But then the Buddha says, the very way that the mind phrases the experience demonstrates the clinging that is still there. And that Bhikkhu Bodhi, very helpfully in the translation, puts sort of I in italic and underlined, I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbana. So it's like, duh. <laughs> That's the clue that if there's a being here who's realized Nibbana, then it, it, there, there's a, uh, an attachment still there. And so then uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, 
say that, that quality of experience then is recognized and that, that attachment is, is acknowledged. And then the, the Buddha says so that recognizing that, then the awake mind instead realizes the, as he says, the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape with respect to the six senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So that every aspect of, of, of experience, recognizing the origin, that it arises, the disappearance, that it fades away, uh, whether it's blissful or, or ordinary or uncomfortable, uh, it, the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the yes, this is blissful, the danger, seeing what happens when the mind attaches to it, and then the escape, which is the, the nisarana, which is the, the way that the, the, the mind seeing that, seeing the, the dynamic of that, is then uh, liberated from it. It's, it sees that any kind of identification is a, uh, uh, an expression of, of ignorance, of not seeing clearly, and that it's inclining towards non-identification, non, non-grasping, and non, non-fabrication, as it were. So that the um, uh, there's a, also a story that's often recounted about um, a- attachment to blissful states. And as Lumpur was saying here, if you think nibbana is a, a pure and high state, then and um, then you you have to have special conditions to sustain it. There's a in the forest tradition in Thailand. There's a very um, well-known story of when Ajahn Mahabur was a young monk and had uh, been training with uh, with Ajahn Man. And the, the style of practice was that you'd go and live with the teacher for a bit and listen to some, te- some talks and get instruction and go off and meditate by yourself. And that the young Ajahn Mahabur had come to practice with Ajahn Man and had and received instruction, gone off to meditate and had experienced very, very profound, blissful states of concentration, very deep states of, of uh, absorption. And uh, when he came back to see Ajahn Man and was kind of, kind of pleased with himself, like, you know, I'm only a new meditator, but hey, you know, I've, um, I've had some really profound states here. To his surprise, uh, Ajahn Man just said, well, don't bother with that. You know, that's, that's all a bit of a waste of time, but instead sustain your attention on the, uh, with just enough concentration to watch the arising and passing of, of the five khandhas. And famously, the young Ajahn Mahabur argued and didn't agree with his teacher and said, "No, you're wrong. This is really this is good and beautiful and pure, and you know you can't you can't be right because this is so good. I know it's good. I ex- experienced it myself." And back and forth, and as they say that the uh, the, the loudness of the argument could be heard all through the forest. And the other monks are like, "Oh my goodness, does he realize how out of out of whack he is?" Anyway, the story goes that then um, the uh, the young Ajahn Mahabur wouldn't believe Ajahn Man and uh, thought he was wrong went off to uh, practice again by himself. But because of that argument um, and disagreeing with his teacher, he couldn't get into those blissful states anymore. That his mind was sort of blocked. And he said, if anyone else, anyone other than Ajahn Man had been responsible for taking those blissful states away from him, he would have killed them. <laughs> so that is very indicative. So that though that blissful and wholesome, beautiful state became a, a cause for homicidal urges you know, that you want to murder on account of that blissful state so it's like clue <laughs> that was not nibbana you know that nibbana the experience of nibbana will not incline you to murder anybody that's like so that uh, and that's so, you know Ajahn Mahabur would tell that story himself right his own sort of ignorance but it's how uh, the mind easily 
sort of mistakes the quality of clear seeing for for those uh, bright and blissful uh, experiences. To, to continue. I was brought up as a high church Anglican in Seattle, Washington. Now in my childhood, we were very rare creatures indeed in Seattle, Washington, and very elitist. We considered ourselves better than everybody else, especially better than the low church Anglicans, not to mention the others. One can get into a kind of exclusiveness as a way of experiencing life. This one is better than that one. What I have is somehow the best. I suffered a lot as a teenager because basically I didn't like that kind of attitude. It wasn't very nice. Always feeling I'm superior to the rest. It didn't appeal to me as a position I really wanted to take in life. When I went to Thailand, I was supposed to ordain in the Dhammayutta Nikaya, which was the king's sect. All the rich people and aristocrats belonged to that one. So this appealed to my high church Anglican side. And I was supposed to go to this teacher, Ajamahabua. This was 1966, but at that time was also the best. Quote, all the rest in Thailand is you might, as, you might as well ignore. This guy has it. There's no point in wasting your time with anyone else. Unquote. Anyway, the high Anglican side of me thought, I've got the best and this is the king's sect and this is the best teacher and all the posh people belong to it. The other sect, the Mahanikaya, which is a collection of everything else, was dismissed as the hoi polloi, just like the... The, uh, what they call the great unwashed, the uh, the vulgar herd, as we are, <laughs> the high polite, the kind of everybody else, just the ordinary people, <clears throat> and not worth bothering with. So I started to reflect on this, and something in me didn't want to get involved with that kind of situation again. It seemed as though history was repeating itself. So I ordained in the Mahanikaya, and no way can you feel superior if you are Mahanikaya. Later I went to stay in Ajahn Chah's monastery and a similar situation arose. Was, this was also an elite group. In fact, Lumpur Chah was considered to be even better than the Damayut! And I could see the same thing happening yet again. We're very strict, very pure, and our teacher is the best. By this time I began to see just how easily I gravitated into that and what a natural karmic inclination I had of moving into these elitist things. Because I'm now aware of that inclination, I no longer have to follow it. But how does one use very good things? Thumpu was a brilliant teacher and his monastic life was impeccable and good, but how do you use these things without identifying with them egotistically? Well, it comes with the pure subject. The ego will either say, I want to be a common, ordinary monk and not be one of those hoity-toity types. It's kind of upper-class, snooty, better than those. Yes, uh, hoity-toity means in English. It's a bit of an old-fashioned term. And I can get into that kind of righteous anarchism because I also have an anarchical streak. Or I can get into a very snooty position of thinking I must only stay with the very best and be an impeccable monk according to the purity of our tradition. But awareness includes both those extremes and you don't grasp either one. When I talk about trusting in awareness, I don't mean trusting in your feelings or your inclinations. I mean trusting in a simple awakened attention, which has no quality to it that you can point to. You have to be it. It is something you recognize. And it isn't difficult. It isn't a question of getting some super type of concentration. 
It's so ordinary, in fact, that you don't notice it. One can easily get into trying to achieve a concentrated state, but that is not it. My main encouragement now is for people to trust themselves more, because one of the greatest problems I've had in the past, and I can see it in others around me, is the ability to trust in this awareness. The ego will always say, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're inflating yourself, and desires affirmation from outside. For years I wanted Lumpo Cha, sorry, for years I wanted Lumpo Cha to tell me that what I was, because I was afraid of overestimating myself. I trusted him more than I trusted myself. I wanted some great teacher to tell me who I was and where I was at. His way of dealing with this was by getting me to look at what I was doing, and this I found very helpful. Eventually I began to see that he was getting me to trust in the awareness of the moment rather than being caught up in wanting answers from him. Wanting affirmation, wanting verification, wanting proof, a certificate, a diploma with a red seal on it stating that I was a certified stream enterer. And uh, he's not actually joking in that respect because there are some monasteries or some retreat centers where they will issue certificates for stream entry. I don't know why they do that. <laughs> Seems a very strange thing, but I have, thus have I heard that there are some places that uh, do issue that. Uh, but um, uh, Lumpur Cha's whole approach was uh, uh, was was very very different. And as uh, Lumpur Sumedho is saying here, that uh, his way of dealing with this was by getting me to look at what I was doing, and this I found very helpful. He was getting me to trust in the awareness of the moment rather than being caught up in wanting answers from him. Now, this pure subject has no name. I cannot claim it as a personal achievement, and it doesn't make judgments or criticisms, and yet it is discerning. This is not like an unconsciousness, uh, sorry, this is not like an unconsciousness, blankness, but pure consciousness with awareness in which wisdom arises. So there is a discerning ability about it, which at the same time is not a critical function. It knows the way things are, and it knows the conditioned, unconditioned. They're together. One is not preferred over the other. In this way, the wholeness is reality, the changingness of the conditioned realm, the way things are, they all belong. They're not seen as obstructions or judged according to ideals, but are what they are. The Buddha, the one who knows, quote-unquote, the Buddha, is the ability we have to know the reality of this state in the present. As soon as you pass judgment, however, you're back into the ego again. I like this better than that. Trusting pure awareness is letting go of the world. At first, that can be frightening, because the world is what you're used to, even if it's imperfect. More and more, however, as you keep trusting in the awareness, it takes the stronger position, and then the force of your karma is seen in terms of what it is. It'll be recognized and understood without it being an obstruction. Questions, thoughts, reflections? I've that process of um, turning back. Uh, I mean, it passive, but it's, it's something mentioned in the three canopies. The idea of the uh, practice is to be passively observing, and that's it. Maybe uh, it needs some effort. Yes. There's a lot of effort. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just passively watching. 
No, the, 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 yeah, well, the, the Buddha said that the, his teaching is a path of, of effort, it's a path of action. It's not, uh, it's not a teaching of passivity or what they call quietism. It's not just trying to switch off. And, and so sometimes that, that when people use that kind of language, often in meditation teaching they say, just be the observer or be the, be the, the watcher, the witness. So those kind of terms can be used, but they can be misunderstood to say you should try and adopt this kind of passivity. It's like you're a, a closed-circuit TV camera just recording the data of, of existence or experience. But it's a, and there's a responsive quality to it, and an and effort uh, needs to be made in order to engage those faculties of mindfulness and wisdom. But the, one of the, the, the most important things to recognize is that effort can be made without ego being involved, without being self-view involved. So if you look at the Eightfold Path, if all the factors of the Eightfold Path are are leading towards peace, towards Nibbana, then right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, there's a lot of doing there. So all that doing is... uh, Something they are all qualities that uh, result in peacefulness. So, if doing and choosing and acting was intrinsically disturbing or busy, or uh, if any kind of decision making was an intrusion on peace, then the, the, none of those things could be part of the path. They couldn't. They couldn't lead to, uh, at least, if uh, according to that reasoning. So that the. Um, uh, what that points to is that decisions can be made from a mind that is completely peaceful. That choices are made. As Lumpur puts it very, very well here, it says that it's discerning, but it's not biased. It's not, uh, it's not preferring one thing over another, so that there's, a, there's that discrimination or discerning going on. But it's, uh, it's, it's just like the example I often give is if you get you go down St. Margaret's Lane to the crossroads with the A4146. If you want to go to Hemel, you turn right. If you want to go to Leighton Buzzard, you turn left. It's not like you hate Leighton Buzzard and you're attached to Hemel. It's like if you need to go to Hemel, go right. So the, the mind can make a choice, but it's not because out of desire and aversion or attachment. It's just like if that's the, the place that need, you, know, you, you need to go to, then go right, don't go left. <laughs> and that the, So that making effort and decision-making can be uh, can be made on the basis of mindfulness and wisdom, with no sense of of self, no kind of self view or conceit involved at all. So that, that that and that's tricky, but I feel that's one of the most helpful things in terms of meditation is to learn to recognize the wholesome and to to uh, recognize the unwholesome and to let go of the unwholesome and to uh, to give rise to and maintain the wholesome based on guidance from mindfulness and wisdom rather than I've got to get rid of my defilements, I've got to get concentrated, I've got to develop wisdom, I've got to become enlightened. Rather like that, that comment of the Buddhas in the, the Panchataya Sutta, the five and the three, 
that uh, it's though uh, <coughs> that giving of direction that that assessing of the present moment can be made free of self-view. Doesn't have to be an I or me or mine involved. It's the young soldier's father who wisely considered it. Well, that, uh, if, if it's genuine, wise reflection, then that's, that's uh, guided by mindfulness and wisdom. There's a clarity there and an ability to... The wisdom faculty is that which is recognizing how one thing relates to another, the, the kind of orderliness. So a lot of the um, wise reflection is recognizing how the patterns of experience work together, what, you know, how this thing works. Just like if you're if you're cooking, you know, okay, I, we need to boil, you know, the water. Okay, you know, what sort of what size pan do we need? Okay, which is the best, which is the best uh, heat source to to make this work? You know, it's like how does this work? How do these things fit together? So a lot of the the na- the quality of wisdom is that sense of pattern recognition, if you like, what, seeing how things work, and and then using the minds. Uh, uh, say understanding and attunement to to the natural order to see how everything works together. And that, again, that's a non-personal thing. It's not a, 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 a me or a mine that's that's guiding that. But the more fully the mind is attuned, then the more fully it understands how nature works. But one more paragraph to the end of this this particular teaching. How does that feel to you? Rather than teaching you, what I'm doing is encouraging you. I can be a friend rather than a teacher. You don't have to always see me as your teacher and yourself as the student. In the reality of life, those conventions are appropriate at times. And I'm quite willing to be Ajahn Somedo at the right time. But the ego attachment to that perception as I'm a teacher, which is usually supposed to be a positive perception, the ego, however, might like that. Another aspect of being the teacher is that you can feel lonely or that you can't learn anymore because you're always teaching. Yet the reality of life, like at Amravati, is that you're learning from each other all the time. The nuns, the monks and everybody are continually influencing and affecting each other. Only a junior person can teach me about my attachment to being senior, which is an important thing to know. When you're senior, you can think, I teach you, but you don't teach me. And that can become arrogant. Sometimes people can be permanently submissive. They can somehow only relate to you as a student. That can work in the beginning, maybe, when that kind of relationship is important. But if you hold them to it, they eventually resent it and leave. They won't stay. Nobody wants to be a permanent student. If we trust our intuition more, of course, our relationships, rather than being habitual, will be natural. We often feel obliged to play these roles with people. But as we trust in our awareness more, we don't have to play the games, whether they do or not. Anyone?